Hello and welcome to Technically Speaking, a podcast where scientists and engineers come together to chat about a common interest, share knowledge and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Laura and in this episode I'm joined by Anika and Rueda to talk about things in science that we can't see and so often get misunderstood. Uh, so before I dive in, I have some exciting news to share. This is a special episode for us. It's a recording in front of an audience from the University of Manchester's Dalton Nuclear Institute, which means, I guess, some of what we talk about will be related to the nuclear industry, but we'll also talk about some wider scientific topics. To start off with, Anika, what's your experience of talking about something that we can't see? I work in, in nuclear fusion, and that can be quite difficult to communicate because we can't see atoms with the naked eye. So, you know, explain to people, you know, the process of nuclear fusion can be quite difficult. And so we try and make that more relatable by linking it to things that people can see. So if the sun is the big one. So nuclear fusion is something that happens in the sun. So we often try and tell people that we're trying to recreate the sun on Earth to make it more relatable because that's something we can see. You talked about you can't see atoms, but then you talk about making an entire sun, which is very different length scale. And if anyone knows me, knows that my PhD was atomistic simulation, so I could see my atoms. Very weird way to think about it. You're talking about atoms and you're talking about the sun at the same time. No, you're right. Completely different length scales. Ruhaida, what about you? What's your experience or interest in talking about something we can't see? Well, I'm a civil engineer, more precisely a structural engineer, so I deal with things I can see. But I'm aware of the misconception happening in, in science and communication science when you can't see things. A very obvious example all over the news at the minute is viruses and how we deal with viruses. Yeah, again, something else we can't see, but it has a definite effect on our lives. And I guess it's easy to misunderstand it when you can see the effect, but not the thing causing that effect, I guess. Yeah, it's just like pain. So you can slap someone in the face, but they can feel the pain. But they don't see the slap coming. Is that what you're no. going with that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you're talking about things we can't see, but they can be confusing. And I was saying my experience is similar to Anika's in that I work with a lot of things that you can't necessarily see, but you can you can feel that slap even if you can't see it coming. <laughs> so things that have effects on our lives and on our work. Uh, and to me, language plays a big part in this. So to illustrate it, I thought we could play a game. So does anyone remember Taboo? I don't know what that game is. Can you explain it? I'll try. I haven't played it in a long time, but essentially you have like, a deck of cards and the top of each card It'll name something that you have to describe. It'll have certain words or phrases on the card that you can't use to describe that thing. So it'll be like the most common phrases that you'd use to describe that thing normally. So you have to get creative and think of another way of describing something. Um, so Rueda, if I was going to try and describe to you like a bridge, I'd have to say it without saying things that would have meaning to you, like it has a span of something or other. Right. So I have an object in my hand that I've been waving around. <laughs> um, I'm going to use three sentences to describe it and you have to try and guess what it is. So the first thing is that it's made from one of the most abundant elements on Earth. It also minimizes waste volumes. And the material is commonly found in the kitchen and it's pretty heat tolerant too. So what, what might that be? But my feeling is Laura used to work a lot with nuclear waste and all of this sentences could be, could be used to describe something used to like make nuclear waste. So I think in the kitchen you have glass and that's used to immobilize waste, isn't it? Is that what you're talking about? Um, can I ask a question? What is like the nuclear waste would look like? 
Uh, it's, uh, I think we, we covered this briefly in another episode, there are lots of different things that would be uh, nuclear or radioactive waste, so it's, uh, it's not easy to define just one thing. But the stuff I worked with the most, it was indeed turned into glass, it was quite dark in colour. I actually have an example that's not radioactive, I should say, that I could show you. But the object I was thinking about is a silicon spatula. Ah. Oh, wow. Okay, so not, not nuclear waste then. So, so is it like, it's not radioactive, your spatula or anything? Well, everything's slightly radioactive, but <laughs> it's, it's no more radioactive than natural backgrounds. But yeah, it's made from silicon, which is one of the most abundant elements on Earth. Um, I use it to scrape out pans in the kitchen, so it minimises waste volumes. <laughs> it's pretty heat tolerant up to about, I think, 250 degrees C. But I did deliberately pick those phrases, in particular, minimising waste volumes, because it is a sentence that is commonly, or a phrase that's commonly used in the nuclear industry. And because I knew that someone here knew I had a nuclear background and worked with waste, thought I might mislead you slightly. So at the point of that, when I was talking at the start about how language plays a part in how people understand things, is I deliberately picked words that could be related to something else that I've also worked with. That's one example of an everyday object, of a spatula, that could be misconstrued, it could be misunderstood. Yeah, it could feel like a nuclear waste. There are other things that we can't see that are easy to describe in a way that could be misunderstood, right? And I used to work at the Dalton Cumbrian facility, which is a radiation facility. Uh, so I think that's one of the big things in the nuclear industry that can also be misunderstood because we can't see it. So I guess one question to ask is how can we make radiation more understandable? I think we have to start with like the fundamentals, right? So maybe we have to define what is radiation. And I guess that means different things to different people, depending on what their backgrounds are. So I've spoke about the sun previously. So if I was thinking about radiation from the sun, I might think of heat radiation. I wouldn't necessarily think of something radioactive. Whereas in the nuclear industry, we're, we're talking about ionizing radiation, right? It's something that it helps when you have some kind of personal experience. So I remember in my undergraduate degree I was really lucky and I got to, so I did mechanical engineering um but I did some nuclear modules and as part of those modules we got to go to the Wilfa reactor in Wales which I believe has been uh, it's, I think it was a Magnox reactor and it's been decommissioned I think a few a few years ago but when I was there we learned about the ionizing radiation because you know we learned about um, when we went on the tour you know the people we went with had to wear a badge the dosimeter badge and their dose and the dose rate was was constantly being monitored. So I think that was really interesting to learn about. And the fact that I remember when we were there, they talked about how actually doing a tour on the site, you're basically exposed to less, like a dose lo lower than the background radiation. I thought that was quite crazy, actually, to be in a nuclear power plant and, and not be exposed to, to radiation. For me, if I think about nuclear radiation, the first thing would pop on my head is Chernobyl. And I think it's just like relate very much to what you're saying about the rate of the dose of the radiation. And that would probably making the site of Chernobyl dangerous till today. And because like the nuclear leaked and that's why it's more... Uh, uh, radioactive or whatever that is called yeah I mean from what I've read the body has quite good mechanisms for repairing itself and if the radiation is affecting some changes that can't be repaired as quickly as the body would like then that's when you get images like you saw in Chernobyl I guess Anika you mentioned when you went on that plant visit they were wearing dosimeters do you know what they look like it's kind of just like a purple plastic, a small rectangle, like a credit card size. And then it had like a little strip. They told us that they have to send that off, I think, 
once a month or once a week, they have to send it off to be analyzed to check the, the amount of radiation they've been exposed to. I, I assume um, that would be gamma irradiation is the one that they're worried about, right? Well, I mean, gamma is quite penetrating, isn't it? So it could pass through your body and not cause a lot of damage. But from what I remember, when I used to work wearing one of those dosimeters, they used to have a bit of photographic film in them. And they had little like filters in different parts of that film that filtered out different types of radiations. They could tell you what the dose from different types of radiation, so alpha, beta, gamma, oh, wow. would have been. And I think the more modern ones, those purple ones, I think they do something that involves thermoluminescence rather than just a piece of photographic film. I guess the important point there is they, they test them quite frequently. So they, they have sort of fairly good records every week or every month, as you say, about how much dose a worker is accumulating so they can make sure they're below whatever limit has been deemed as appropriate. And I guess it's because they're working there all the time. And I think another similar example would be like in a hospital or a, a dentist where they're doing x-rays all the time, for example. For you to be an exposed to an x-ray as a patient is absolutely fine because the assumption is you're not going to be having an x-ray every single day, hopefully. Um, but obviously the people taking the x-rays, they have to leave the room and take precautions because if that builds up over time, then that's unsafe for them. We've also had something really interesting from Adrian in, in the chat, going back to the sunlight example as well. So that explaining that radiation is not always dangerous and that we all understand that we need factor 50 when it's 45 degrees and we're in Cyprus, but that's probably okay to go out without sun cream in, in Manchester in November. So I think that's a really nice example. I really like that. Thanks, Adrian. I think it's safe to go out in Manchester today. You don't have a sun. Yeah, I think for the last few weeks, it's, it's been pretty great. Good point. It depends on the intensity, similar to the radiation, the ionizing radiation dose, right? I guess we should probably define what we mean by ionizing. You mentioned that about five minutes ago, and we haven't really explained it. Yeah, I was about to ask about this. <laughs> yeah, so to me, it's um, it's the ability to knock electrons off an atom. Okay, that's simple. Yeah, so you can imagine that if chemical bonds are made from atoms joining together through that chemical um, electron interaction, you can say I'm not a chemist, I keep saying this. <laughs> you can break <laughs> chemical bonds, you can also make chemical bonds form depending on the exact composition of your material. Interesting. There are some instances where radiation is useful. Um, Anika already mentioned healthcare. Car tires are irradiated. So it makes the, the material, the polymers in it cross-link. Oh, I might be getting in dangerous territory saying polymer. <laughs> but essentially it makes the rubber stronger so it has better grip. So it actually makes the car safer. I never knew that. I didn't know that. No, very few people do. It's interesting, isn't it? Radiation is used to process quite a lot of things, but no one really talks about it. Also food, right? I've heard that they use radiation to sterilise or make like maybe meat products or something like this that they use it for. I've, I've heard something along those lines. Yeah, some some nations do. I, I want to say that some spices are irradiated before they come to the UK. So it kills the bacteria, it makes the, the spice or the meat or whatever it is live, last for longer. Is that when you dry them in the sun or is it this, another procedure? Like, is it the simple old procedure of drying stuff in the sun? Yeah, I guess it's things that you wouldn't normally dry out, like strawberries, say. You wouldn't want a dry strawberry. I don't know how it tastes like. <laughs> you can pass them through these big sort of conveyor belt things that shine um, um, possibly gamma rays, again, not too sure, at a dose rate that will kill the bacteria, but preserve the sugars and whatever else is in the strawberry so it still tastes good. So I guess what's interesting to see, there are lots of ways radiation can be used for benefits, but there's a lot of fear around radiation. And I wonder if that's because of how it's communicated in media 
or how films just seem to misrepresent it. Yeah, I think it's misconception about it that like for me, any anytime anyone says radiation, Chernobyl. I also think that's because it had great production value. Do you know what I mean? Like the people who made that series, it was really exciting to watch, um, really dramatic and like it held people's attention. I think, you know, the other stories, the more positive stories, no one no one's portrayed them in that way that makes them so accessible and exciting to the public. Um, so people remember, you know, the negative things maybe. Yeah, because it's misconception, isn't it? Yeah, and it's always that that big dramatic something's gone wrong that is more interesting than look at this brilliant thing that radiation helped us do. But I, I guess we've all got examples of other things that are miscommunicated or that are unseen, which is why they're miscommunicated perhaps from other parts of our lives. Yeah, I think like some stuff is miscommunicated by accident and other stuff I think it's a deliberate kind of marketing ploy as well for, from certain industries. So like I know fashion is a big one at the moment that people are talking about. So a lot of companies are saying, oh, you know, we're making things in a more ethical way. We're using sustainable materials and, you know, we're really good for the environment. But I think Greta Thunberg did an interview with Vogue and basically talked through how a lot of this stuff is, is just greenwashing. So it's the, you know, the fashion industry just portraying themselves to be doing this because they still need people to buy clothes at the end of the day to be a viable industry. And Greta's kind of point of view was that actually while you're consuming so much stuff, you are contributing still to, to climate change because I think the fashion industry is like one of the biggest I want to say it's like it makes eight percent of CO two emissions, but I think we need to fact check that because I can't remember. But it's, it's a ridiculous amount; like it's, it's several countries worth of, of emissions from the fashion industry. Um, and the point of Greta was that, like, yeah, we just don't need to consume as much. That's the the best way you can be sustainable, but that doesn't fit with the fashion industry making money. So I think that's a nice example of kind of deliberate miscommunication from the fashion industry to make people think that they're making better choices, but actually the choices to not buy things would, would be better than buying things that are so-called sustainable in, in inverted commas. I guess the challenge there is like how do you define sustainable? Mm-hmm. How, how do you get across how a global industry operates to someone that just wants to wear clothes so they're not cold and uncomfortable or covering up from the sun? I think it's so it's so nuanced, isn't it? Sustainability, because you have to think about every kind of aspect of the supply chain and people just don't do that. Like we we all use mobile phones, but we don't think about, you know, where bits in our mobile phones are coming from. Or I, I know veganism is, is big at the moment. I'm an ex-vegan. So apologies to, to anyone who, who may still be vegan. But a lot of the time people say that it's great and it's a really sustainable way of living. But it's not that simple how certain you know products are farmed or um how workers are treated in the production or or, you know in farms and things like that can be really terrible and for me that's that's not um sustainable so I think we need to be more nuanced as a society when we're trying to describe and explain these concepts Uh, also like some people are vegan for like uh, health issues so we're not touching on those no 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 we don't want to get funded yeah, I guess everyone's got their reasons for doing something. But I mean, I guess so Greta's saying just don't buy clothes, don't consume as much. But then I can imagine that that would have a negative effect on the societies that are built up around whatever that industry is. I guess it depends on how that company does its business and whether it looks after the people and the environment that it operates in, uh, which, yeah, you're right, it's, it's difficult to know. I know in finance, there is something called ESG scores. So there's obviously some calculation to determine whether a company is doing things sustainably or not, if they can come up with a score. But I also know there's some 
debate about how useful those scores are. It depends on the method that you've used to arrive at that number, I guess. Mm. Yeah. So, because like, how 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 would you define how sustainable thing is? Is it the year that you use it? Is it how durable it is, or is it the material behind it? Yeah. I just seen that we've got a message in the chat that the fashion industry is responsible for ten percent of annual global carbon emissions, which is more than flights and maritime shipping combined. And I think there's an inference that it's continuing to increase its emissions. So we're consuming more fashion when perhaps we shouldn't be. Well, we're talking about misconceptions and something like recently in the media is like all over now is vaccines and anti-vaccine propagandas. So I, I think whoever create these propagandas playing on people fear, which is something we can see like pain. So when you play on people fear, you will relate that to something to lead to a huge misconception. And recently in, in the news, I was reading that um, I'm a legend movie is created a bit of a misconception about uh, the vaccine would change people to zombies because in the movie, like the, the they injected the population with something to help with cancer and, and uh, they ended up with 99% of the people die and that the rest got turned into zombies because of the vaccine and and the anti-vaccine propaganda people uh, promoted that movie to say this is the future uh, ending up like the screenwriter of the movie um, tweeting about saying well this is fictional and you should not believe that so you can see like how misconception will play on people fear and get people to believe unbelievable things like a movie. I saw some of that, um, the anti-vax stuff that was about I Am Legend. And I don't think they, they actually said this will happen. They just kind of posted a picture and vaguely linked it to vaccines and let people, I guess, make the link themselves. So like people's imagination could then just go crazy. And often what's in your imagination is worse than what you see in films, right? Yeah, it's again something you can't see. And yeah, I guess people's emotions are, are really important. And I think what we have to remember is, okay, there are some people who maybe, you know, base their, their, these things on on movies or things like that. But other people do have, you know, valid concerns about vaccines or about, you know, discrimination um, in, in healthcare and things like that. So um, obviously in America, they, there was um, these... Uh, uh, trials on on African Americans, really horrific stuff, and and that's in living memory. Only decades ago, that was happening. So obviously, there will be like that. That's in the living memory of people. So there will be that mistrust of the healthcare system. Um, and I know uh, Rareda was talking um, when we were talking before about one of her friends had side effects, you know, really really bad side effects to a vaccine previously. So I think people have really justifiable fears and, and they're based on real things so we have to approach these with a lot of empathy and, and compassion and trying to understand where they're coming from and, and try and convince why it's actually good to, to take this vaccine even though there is that risk still there yeah because you have sometimes like the benefit would outcome the risks and I think like certain decisions were made in the UK on what type of vaccine to give people based on this assessment of risk be as benefits to people. So a lot of these fears come from like your formative years, right? And what you saw when you were growing up. And like, I mean, for me, I, I grew up, vaccines were a standard thing. There would be like every, every year in school, our school group would get given an immunization that was appropriate for their age group. So... I think for me, it was just something I was used to. And we also had like, um, wasn't related to viruses, but sort of more widely healthcare in general. We had a dentist come into school when I was about, I don't know, eight years old. And you sort of you stained your teeth with some dye that showed up all the stuff that's still on your teeth, even after you've just brushed them. 
and it sort of pointed out how much stuff is still there even though you think it's clean and it took a lot of effort to get the the stain off so that stained plaque and bacteria and whatever else so I think little examples like that kind of showed me like there's an expert telling me to do something and I can see why and if I don't do this I'll get ill because I did get quite a lot of colds when I was ill so again related to viruses yeah well that's interesting you said that because my uh, younger sister got an eye test because they test our eyes in the schools as well and when she got her eye test she was in the second second grade so she's pretty young to know that she can't see well and we found out that she needed glasses from the school test oh what age was that sorry it's about eight years old so she did not know that she's not seeing very well wow so what she could not see was just normal and no one had really had that conversation yeah because she did not know that like she's like pretty young that so but we, we kind of noticed she's being weird with reading stuff but like the school box would have a huge letters at this age so you won't notice that much and when they had the eye test it seems she had a quite a bit of problem with her eyes so she had to wear glasses but without that test being in the school we would have like missed that till later age so I guess yeah again what you what you experience in school and the people that teach you makes a big difference um, but I, yeah, I can certainly see if you didn't have those sorts of experiences growing up, if you'd never been introduced to that dentist that showed you how how bad your teeth are, even though they look clean, or to have health checks or immunizations in school, you might have a very different approach. And for me, something else you can't see, so we touched on this a bit earlier, so viruses are pretty small, so you can't see them, but atoms are even smaller. Your atoms again. Yeah, I love my atoms. Uh, Anika mentioned, like, we can't really see what's in our smartphones. We just kind of pick them up and use them. But I know that the technology in smartphones has gotten more and more complicated, which is why they, they last longer and they can do more things and they're more powerful. Um, but that means there are, it's, there's a wider variety of chemical elements in there, which need to be mined. They have to come from somewhere and normally they come out of the ground. But I have I have no clue really what is in my phone and where it comes from. Well, I know they use them now to you to make uh, the Olympic medals. Yeah, I'd heard that recycled phones. So, is there a lot of like gold and silver in them? I don't know. I don't think it's really gold, though, is it? The medal. I think it just looks gold. Could I'm not old. sure, though. Gold plated. They've been shortchanged those Olympians. We have any Olympic medalists in our audience? Maybe they. Can, uh... But I mean, you can't see where your atoms come from. You're, I have no experience of mining either. If these things come out of the ground. I've I've never been down a mine. I don't know any miners. And I, I wonder how dangerous is it? I, there's a lot of stories about mining being dangerous. And I, I guess when I've spoken to people, it's sort of they've come up with images of like people covered in dirt or explosions and things like that. But I honestly don't know if those images are true, nor do I know where in the world these mines are. True. I th- the thing about people being very detached, because I think before people knew where, like if you if you had yeah a piece of technology, you could take it apart, look what's inside, figure out, you know, where, where bits and bobs come from change things as well but as we move on I feel the technology it's like I can't open up my phone I don't know about anyone else but I'm unable to open up my my phone so we can't see what's inside and, and I think that's so common across not just technology but so many different things whether it's food for example people are just really detached uh, and clothes as we were talking about before they're just so detached as to the, all the processes that go into things so I think you know we really have to go back to basics on a lot of things as well and, and talk about the whole process and not just think that these things pop out of thin air because yeah it's a pretty 
horrendous process for a lot of the things um, like phones, for example, because I think um, co- cobalt is one of the big um, elements in a lot of phones. And that's what most of that uh, comes from um, Congo. And there's pretty horrific conditions um, in the mines um, yeah, that have been, have been reported for the extraction of co- cobalt and stuff. I tried to do a little bit of digging into this. Like I know gas underground is a big problem, but you can put monitors in there and ventilation systems to ensure that either people aren't breathing in something that could be dangerous or could cause an explosive environment. But it also sounded like although mining operations in parts of like North America and England are fairly well regulated, in other places that's not the case. But I did find a statistic surprised me a little bit because people say mining is so dangerous that the International Council on Mining and Metals recorded 90 fatalities in 2012 and 50 in 2018, which is pretty low in comparison to statistics on workplace deaths in the UK. So it's getting a bit grim. Um, last year, there were 142 worker fatalities in the UK. So the mining industry reported fewer fatalities than all of industries in the uk would we though believe like all the statistics coming that is the other question how valid they are it's a very good question it's um there's a bit of debate about how the mining industry reports their fatalities and how accurate they are some of them don't class like a fatality that's due to transportation rather than the mining operation itself as a fatality and i guess if if that mining operation is producing a lot of dust or some other pollutants, which might be affecting a local community, I can't imagine that that is recorded as part of mining company statistics. So yeah, you're going to say lies, damn lies, and statistics. See so where we're going with this. Yeah, it's like it's because like it would depend on the way you measure stuff. Like because you'll have this like this key point that you would measure again. So so maybe you would classify someone who fall uh in the website as an injury but eventually he would he could eventually die though you won't classify it as a fatality at the end because he did not die on the site and that would be a different definition between different uh i think different government and industries i think what they would need to have the same sort of uh, regulation all over it's a more global like regulation so you could kind of measure stuff against each other because you can't really measure things if they were not measured in the same way that makes sense yeah i get what you mean you need yeah your, your standard methodology if you're gonna i was gonna say do an experiment it's not what i mean at all i was thinking about taking it back to science but yeah i guess how how do you get across to person sitting here using their phone how to get across where all those things have come from if it's a global industry and i guess that has links into climate change as well it's another big globally affecting thing and we can't really see co2 or any of the greenhouse gases but we can see the effects of it but even those effects are kind of they're not obvious if it's a slow change in the weather then how seems to be what climate deniers say isn't it that this is just a natural process I think like the what happened this year with the forest fires had shade much more light on the importance on how climate change is working and how it's important that we would need to take more care about our planet. It's difficult though, isn't it? Because as Laura was saying, some people 
they see these events and they just say, oh, it's, it's the weather, it's something that happens, but it's just the frequency of it. And that goes back to the dose and the dose rate stuff as well, isn't it? It's the frequency of things. It's not just the intensity. It's not just that it happens. It's how often it's happening. And yeah, making people aware that they're all kind of linked together is, is really challenging, especially, you know, here there's all this talk about, oh, we're going to net zero. But the reality is we export so much of our CO2 emissions what does that mean that the UK is going to net zero when we're still getting all of our you know, phones from, from other countries where, where they're being manufactured or our clothes are being manufactured elsewhere or our food is being grown elsewhere? We still rely on all these things. So I think people need to be more open and honest as well when they're talking about stuff and more holistic. I don't know if that's the right word, but stop looking at just one tiny thing, but kind of look at the, the bigger picture and yeah, they're kind of more honest in the stories that they're telling because that's what it comes down to at the end of the day isn't it it's, it's storytelling that's what we're doing when we're communicating what you're getting is like you need to trust the expert even if the expert was much younger than you and yeah I guess take the example of climate change if if I've done my PhD in climate change I mean researching it for five years before that I probably know quite a lot about it yeah so and if, if it's quite a nuanced complex thing that expert should understand those nuances yeah yeah it's, it's like the the kid i see dead people the sixth sense Roeda. <laughs> yeah it's the sixth sense it's, he's, he's the expert he's seeing dead people he's seeing the thing that no one else can see yeah, yeah. but he's a, a small child so who's going to believe him <laughs> exactly not, not bruce willis is not, what not bruce willis <laughs> for that movie but yeah it's, it's quite a good analogy though if you can't see something and someone else can who's right who's the crazy person are there any crazy people or is it just a different perspective you reminded me of the dress that some people were seeing the dress as blue or white (laughs) and it somehow had to do with the lighting and the reflection in your head so some people could see it as a blue dress and some people could see that as a white dress yeah I still didn't quite understand the justification of how it appears different to certain people but it just it seemed a bit like not specific to me say oh it's just the lighting yeah i i could see it it was blue for me i think wasn't yeah i think it was blue for me yeah it's like we were all looking at the same picture so surely the lighting in the picture would have been standard i feel like there must be some some more complexity to that than people were talking about and the experts probably understood it but maybe it hadn't been communicated very well when it went viral yeah misconception and miscommunication again I feel like we've sort of we've come full circle. We've come back to the whole um, the use of language and storytelling. Frankie sent something in in the chat about um, radioactivity, um, where people saying uh, people don't realise that radiation is present in everyday life um, as well as just in nuclear. So you can get background radiation from radon in rocks, which some of the highest percentages in the UK in Cornwall. And when it comes to food, Brazil nuts have the most natural radiation, and that's really interesting because I know like Brazil nuts is seen as one of those health foods. Yeah, it's a selenium content. You meant to get some like two Brazil nuts a day to get your required selenium uptake. But so if, if you then spun it and say, oh, you get really, you know, you get natural radiation from them as well. I wonder if people would have the same perception. And then we've had a comment from Adrian as well saying having people and experts you can trust is really important. Perhaps why Greta Thunberg has been so influential. We feel that her young age means she's speaking with personal conviction, not for some ulterior motive. And I think that's a really good point. 
I think the authenticity of the people telling the stories that they're telling makes a huge difference. Like I'm so much more willing to listen to someone who's got experience in that area or yeah, as as Adrian says, doesn't seem to have like an ulterior motive, which often politicians or big companies do. So it's really nice to hear things from people who have that experience. It's like when you go to the doctor, isn't it? Like you trust your doctor when they say you have a broken leg and I'll, I'll fix it. But I don't think you'd go to someone else to, to fix it. You, you trust the doctor to fix it because they have that experience in that area and you know that their motivation is to, to make you feel better. Um, and I think we should we should apply that to other specialists in other kind of areas as well. I injured my toe many years ago and I was convinced there was nothing a medical professional could do. And then it, it kept on swelling and it got bigger and bigger. Um, there was something obviously not quite right with it. So I was told I had to go to the emergency room and they agreed with me. It's not broken. There's nothing you can do. Just go home and rest it. <laughs> I think because I've broken quite a few things or damaged quite a few things when I've been like climbing trees and things as a child. I think I, I had some awareness of what a break would be like versus what a sprain or a strain would be like. But also, I think you know yourself the best as well, right? That's the other main thing. Is every, everybody in the podcast climbing a tree except me when they were kids? This is our very first episode. And I was I was the reckless child. I was the dangerous one in the family, and I never have climbed a tree. I feel bad now. I need to go back, travel back in time, and climb a tree. Life experience. Maybe we should do that's a team building exercise if we can ever meet in person as a group. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, Adrian's point about um, trusting experts. I think I was thinking about this earlier on, and I was thinking about uh, plastic pollution and how it only seems to have become a really big thing since um, David Attenborough started talking about it and did a few like documentaries on how plastic pollution affects the sea life. And I, I can imagine, because I remember watching wildlife documentaries when I was very small, so David Attenborough's pretty much always been part of my life, that a lot of people would listen to him because they've had that similar formative experience of this um, very measured, very sort of um, knowledgeable person talking to them. So, yeah, I think listening to people that you trust who are experts is probably quite good advice. I don't know if we sound like experts or not, or just rambling scientists and engineers. <laughs> Maybe our audience can tell us. Bunch of nerdy people. And I think, Inika, you've mentioned that um, like films and TV have a lot of influence in your life. Yeah, like, I, I, this sounds really bad, but I think my love of science didn't really come from from scientists it came from watching a lot of movies when I was was a kid which made science look really cool not that scientists don't make it look cool but there's just something about seeing things vividly in a movie that make it really exciting and accessible to people I think as scientists we need to collaborate more with people from the arts and people who who tell stories as their job because I don't think we do it very well I don't know about, about everyone else but when you read like scientific papers some of them are great don't get me wrong but they're not the most gripping reads do you know what I mean? They're no Lord of the Rings. But I think we need to collaborate more with artists and, and authors and people working in these industries to, to have more kind of, um, what's the word? Authority over our stories. Is that the right word? Like we control, so we control what stories we tell rather than them picking, you know, Chernobyl or things like that. If we as scientists choose the stories we want to tell and make it, you know, accessible to the public, I think that could really be important in in spreading kind of positive messages and and ch changing the narrative control our narrative that's what I was trying to think of yeah we could control our, our narrative I think that's what 
documentary people are trying to do at the, this time, isn't it? They're trying to get the story in more appealing way to the audience and tell the right story rather than the old weird story that has been twisted by someone. And I guess like documentaries are one part of it, but it's also, like, I'm quite a big fan of the Marvel films and I grew up with a lot of sci-fi films as well. Now you got me to think about the Simpsons and the shiny material that they got. <laughs> Is it always shiny? It doesn't glow. It makes other things glow. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. It's uh, back to the film badges. You know, I said they're thermoluminescent. So they luminesce mm. when um, radiation impinges on them. And you can tell something from it about the way it luminesces. Depends on the chemicals. But it not, does not glow itself. Shouldn't do. I mean, yeah, I guess if you, start, if you shine UV light on things, certain things can glow. It depends on the chemical. Interesting. Anyway, I feel like we've gotten um, we've gone down a weird rabbit hole and gotten very distracted. So I think that's probably a good place to leave it. So how do we communicate things that we can't see? Uh, it seems like there are lots of ways that science and engineering is misrepresented in news or by films or even from stories that form part of our society. Uh, so I guess as scientists, we're up against the sensationalist stories that people choose to tell. And they're stories that can play on people's emotions, like with the anti-vax stuff. Uh, which means that focusing on facts alone won't work, because as Anika pointed out, sometimes they're just really boring. <laughs> um, so the greatest challenge is for scientists to tell stories that have meaning to people, and also to ask people to think critically and develop a questioning attitude and maybe set aside their fears and start to ask more questions. And I guess we should also recognise when someone has had uh, enough expertise to offer useful information, whether it's David Attenborough or Greta Thunberg. So we don't have a... a particularly great answer for how to do that but I guess this podcast is one way of starting those sorts of conversations that can get people to ask questions and ask about things they want to hear about so if you want to speak to us and carry on this conversation you can find us on twitter or you can leave a comment on this episode the views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them they do not represent any industry or organization if you enjoyed listening to these views it would really help us out if you could rate us leave a review and tell a friend this podcast was sponsored by no one but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering please get in touch